the book collector for the summer of 2023, we printed an article by Philip Gooden entitled Shadowing Bond. This drew a number of favorable comments from people whom, we assume, like the genre, but are fed up with the whole Bond business. Here, then, is Philip Gooden reading Shadowing Bond. The 1960s were a golden age for British spy fiction. Dozens of writers, some experienced thriller hands, others fresh to the game, tried their hand at what Anthony Burgess called the fictional genre of the age. Key to the boom was the enduring success of Ian Fleming's Bond novels, and, more particularly, as the 1960s got underway, the acclaim and box office returns earned by the Sean Connery films. Burgess himself, generally regarded as a literary novelist, clambered uneasily on the bandwagon with Tremor of Intent, Heinemann, 1966, discussed at the end of this piece. If the genre wasn't exactly a natural fit for a novelist who idealised James Joyce, other writers demonstrated a real flair and zest for the spy world. Most are now forgotten, but quite a few deserve resurrection, not only because they reflect that era, but because they wrote good stories. What follows is split into four categories, professionals, amateurs, dandies and literary types. In most cases, these categories describe the fictional protagonists rather than their authors, although there is some overlap between the two. The professionals. There were still a few old-timers around in the 1960s, writers who'd grown up in the 1930s and seen action during World War II, sometimes involving intelligence work. One such was William Haggard, the pseudonym of Richard Clayton, who served in intelligence in Burma and India during the war and afterwards worked in the civil service running the enemy property department a surprisingly long-lived hangover from 1945 and one that dealt with the legal ramifications of seized enemy property. Haggard's spy thrillers are mostly set in a world he knew well, the corridors of government and financial power. His central figure is Colonel Charles Russell, head of the security executive, who is described as soldierly and faintly donnish and almost certainly a flattering projection of how the author saw himself. Haggard's first book was Slow Burner, Castle, appropriately titled since it came out in 1958, when the author was in his 50s. From then until the late 1980s, he produced almost a book a year. The Arena, Castle, 1961, was reputedly his favourite and is typical of his best and earliest work. It involves a takeover battle between two merchant banks, one of which is being manipulated by shadowy foreign interests. Haggard was generally rather vague about the other side. All this may sound dusty and dry, but Haggard was adept at bureaucratic intrigue and took care to leaven his books with a dash of violence. He was also good at dropping in a bit of pseudoscience, something that's very typical of 1960s spy writing. One book toys with the concept of negative gravity, another with a form of biological warfare which would affect particular ethnic groups. In his heyday, 
Haggard was acclaimed as the adult Ian Fleming. The description may not be altogether fair to either man, but it illustrates how almost every spy novelist had to be seen, somehow, in relation to the creator of James Bond. Another writer with a similar wartime background to Haggard was Francis Clifford, who also served in Burma and worked in the SOE, Special Operations Executive. Clifford, whose real name was Arthur Thompson, began with books that were more in the thriller-adventure vein than espionage stories. But the 1960s saw a handful of distinguished spy tales. All Men Are Lonely Now, Hodder and Stoughton, 1967, is told from the viewpoint of David Lancaster, a senior civil servant in a branch of the Ministry of Defence, responsible for the research and development of new weapons systems. A Soviet defector reveals that a traitor in the department is leaking secrets of the latest missile technology to the Russians. Lancaster is in charge of security, so it becomes his task to track down the traitor with the help of Special Branch. About halfway through the book, Clifford achieves a sleight of hand reminiscent of Agatha Christie. Yet the resulting dilemma is resolved in a way that would have been beyond Christie, being both tense and involving on an ordinary human level. There are no car chases in All Men Are Lonely Now, no magical weapons. Much of the book is set in Whitehall, although the climax takes place on the border between East and West Germany. It's an unshowy book, quite slow-moving at first, and it's also one of the best spy novels of the 1960s. If Clifford is neglected, then the same could be said of another spy writer with a more high-profile and varied career, which began decades before the 1960s and continued right up until his death in 1995. Adam Hall was the pseudonym of Elliston Trevor, probably best known for The Flight of the Phoenix, Heinemann, 1964. In fact, Elliston Trevor was another pseudonym of Trevor Dudley Smith, a writer who, under almost a dozen pen names, produced everything from children's stories to hard-nosed thrillers. Elliston Trevor, or Adam Hall, stumbled into the spy world almost by chance as a result of having to fulfil a contractual obligation to a publisher. The Berlin Memorandum, Collins, 1965, featured Hall's creation, the operative known simply as Quilla, not his real name, or simply Q, who works for the Bureau. Aspects of this first novel are act 1960s. Berlin was the natural location for espionage fiction of the period. Titles were stamped with terms like file, dossier, memorandum, document, directive, order or briefing. And the invention of a shadowy executive, loosely but deniably linked to MI6, meant that its employees could engage in activities that were even more off the books than usual. And they didn't have to be licensed to kill, either. In the Berlin Memorandum, Quiller infiltrates a secret society plotting a Nazi resurgence, so it's more about the past than the contemporary enemy. But later titles, like The Warsaw Document, Heinemann, 1971, have the Soviet Union and the communist system squarely in their sights. Quiller is ultra-tough. He's been trained to withstand torture, and withstand it he can. 
at times of great stress, he's almost able to divorce himself from his body so as to consider a situation in a completely rational way. And he is something of a polyglot too, fluent in Russian, Polish, German, and so on. The third Quiller novel, The Striker Portfolio, Heinemann, 1968, opens with half a page of untranslated German dialogue. Hall had a real writer's gift of being able to evoke places and predicaments with conviction and absolute believability. His editor apparently couldn't believe he hadn't visited Poland to research the Warsaw document. Hall told him he'd done it all out of maps and guidebooks and sprinkled the result with a smattering of Polish phrases. Because Hall believed in what he was writing, and because, like his hero, he was a professional, the reader believes in it too. Amateurs Amateur spies have had a long run in fiction, going back at least to the early 20th century, and books like The 39 Steps and The Riddle of the Sands. The pattern is that an amateur, a journalist, a businessman, a scientist on his way to a conference, stumbles into a conspiracy which threatens peace and security, usually somewhere in Europe. He must extricate himself from danger and save the world at the same time. Eric Ambler was the greatest exponent of this particular type of spy fiction in the 1930s and 40s. Helen McInnes, one of the most successful and long-lived players in the amateur spy game, started writing in the early 1940s and published her last book in 1984. McInnes was born in Scotland, but spent most of her life in the United States, where her husband, Gilbert Hyatt, also Scottish, was a lecturer at Columbia University. Before the war, the young couple travelled in Germany, where they were horrified at the ruthless way the Nazis consolidated their power. After the war started, Hyatt worked with an Anglo-American intelligence liaison unit in New York. One of his tasks was to prepare profiles of top Nazis to help politicians and military leaders understand their opponents. It was around this time that his wife wrote her first book, Above Suspicion, Little Brown, 1941. Although there is no suggestion her husband talked to her about his intelligence work, he was far too discreet for that. Her novels are heavy on character and analysis. They are shaped by a hatred of totalitarianism, whether of the Nazi variety or later of the Soviet sort. McKinney's turned her attention to the Cold War in Decision at Delphi, Harcourt, 1960, and The Venetian Affair, Harcourt, 1963. In this book, a New York journalist is caught up in a Soviet-backed plot to assassinate General de Gaulle and to pin the blame for it on the US and British intelligence services. Although it's 60 years old now, the story feels oddly up-to-date. There are forged letters, disinformation, and the manipulation of gullible media figures. The Venetian affair is talky and quite slow-moving. The book doesn't actually reach Venice until halfway through. But there is no doubting that McKinnis was a serious and accomplished writer. She deserved the title that was bestowed on her around this time, Queen of the Spy Writers. Among other amateur agents was Boise Oaks, created by John Gardner. Boise was meant as a send-up of James Bond. He was a coward, frightened of flying and scared of heights. He accidentally kills a couple of Germans during the liberation of Paris, 
saving the life of Mostyn, an intelligence officer who subsequently becomes head of an unofficial wing of MI6. Remembering Boise's apparent skill and ruthlessness, Mostyn recruits him as an assassin or liquidator, the title of Gardner's first thriller, published by Frederick Muller in 1964. Boise doesn't do the killings himself, but pays a real hitman to carry them out. On the coattails of Bond, but also as a kind of inversion of Fleming's hero, The Liquidator was a bestseller. Gardner ingeniously had it both ways, producing exciting thrillers while cocking a snook at the Bond phenomenon. Given his disdain for Bond, it's ironic that he was asked to take over the 007 franchise in the late 1970s. An even more unlikely hero was invented by James Leesaw in the person of Dr. Jason Love, sharing initials with his creator. Dr. Love, a general practitioner in a Somerset village, is persuaded to undertake a bit of amateur secret agenting by an old MI6 acquaintance from wartime service in India. The first book in the series, Passport to Oblivion, Heinemann, 1964, takes him to Iran to help foil a Russian plot to assassinate the Shah. More than half a dozen love books followed, all with passport in the title. At the time, they'd seemed to be a decent attempt to fit the outside shoes of James Bond, a bit more serious than some. In passing, it's worth noting how important travel was to the spy novels of the 1960s. The very word passport seemed to promise adventure. Pages might be devoted to describing a car journey through France, or the process of boarding a plane, or the decor of a restaurant in Venice. Such exotic details are a reminder of how near these books were to the post-war years of austerity and rationing in Britain, and how spythrows could give a glimpse of wider horizons and a more exciting life. A better writer than either John Gardner or James Lisa was Lionel Davidson, three-time winner of the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger for Best Crime Novel of the Year, including for The Night of Wenceslas, Gollanks, 1960, his first book. It's the story of Nicholas Whistler, an Anglo-Czech who works in the London branch of a glass business set up by his late English father in pre-war Prague. Disparaged by his employer, earning £7 a week, living in digs and involved in an on-off relationship with his Irish girlfriend, Nicholas is reminiscent of other chippy young men in novels of the era by writers like Kingsley Amis and Stan Barstow. Yet the book takes a quite different turn when this very ordinary hero is inveigled into visiting Czechoslovakia, ostensibly to inspect new methods of glass production, in reality to collect a secret formula for unbreakable glass. The last third of the Night of Wenceslas is a skillfully handled cat-and-mouse pursuit through Prague, with Nicholas discovering he can be cunning, quick-thinking, and even violent, things that he'd never imagined himself capable of. By the end, something unusual has occurred to the protagonist of a thriller. Nicholas has learned some lessons. He has changed. Here is an amateur spy you can actually believe in. The Dandies Derek Marlowe was a maverick figure, whose best-known book was his first, A Dandy in Aspic, Gollicks, 1966, 
which drew on a period he'd spent in Berlin, and which typified the cool, ambivalent approach of the new breed of spy writer. The anti-hero, Alexander Eberlin, works for British intelligence, but is actually a Soviet mole. He is tasked by his British masters with tracking down and disposing of a Russian assassin, in fact himself. The brilliant idea of turning a secret agent into his own pursuer is the engine that drives a dandy in aspic, and one of the reasons for the book's appeal. But ambiguous anti-heroes and the Hall of Mirrors nature of the contemporary spy world were already familiar to readers of the spy who came in from the cold, Golanx, 1963, and the Epcress file, Hodder and Stoughton, 1962. The difference was that while Le Carre and Dayton aimed for bleak realism and hip realism, respectively, Marlowe turned the spy game into a baroque absurdity. Hypocrisy and double-crossing are less important than the protagonist's suits, or his witticisms delivered in the style of Oscar Wilde. If James Bond can pontificate on wine, Eberlin is able to snub one of his superiors over the date on a snuff box. None of this apparently rouses the suspicion of his British masters. But after all, they don't seem to have been alerted by his name. It was an ironic ploy on Marlowe's part to call his anti-hero Alexander Eberlin, since Alexanderplatz was a central location in what was then East Berlin. In the same mischievous spirit, Dandy is probably the only spy novel of the period in which the central character is trying to get over the Berlin Wall in the wrong direction, west to east. Supposedly written in four weeks while the author was sharing a Pimlico flat with the then-unknown writers Tom Stoppard and Piers Paul Reed, Dandy was an immediate hit on both sides of the Atlantic, although the ending of the US edition, Putnam's, is less downbeat than the British original, because the American publishers demanded it. More than half a century later, writing to mark the reissue of a Dandy in Aspic, Civil Tale Books, 2015, Tom Stoppard remembered Marlowe as a romantic figure in dark clothes who had a life of which I, a country mouse in the big city, knew little, as well as a graceful writer and a graceful man who died too young. Marlowe, who died in 1996 at the age of 58, said that his first novel provided the luckiest four years in my life. An odder case from the 1960s is provided by Adam Dement, who blazed like a meteor and then vanished. Online pictures of Dement show a slightly square-faced young man with a shaggy helmet of blonde hair and a dolly bird or two in attendance. The title of his first book, which appeared in 1967, was, in fact, The Dolly Dolly Spy, Michael Joseph. His hero is Philip McAlpine, a young man about town, fast driver, qualified pilot, and avid consumer of hash. It's the threat of a drugs bust which gets him enlisted into one of those unofficial offshoots of MI6 with which 1960s spy fiction abounds. In McAlpine's case, its initials are NC slash NAC, or Knickknack. This set the tone for four jokey thrillers whose titles included The Great Spy Race and The Bang Bang Birds, both published by Michael Joseph in 1968. 
an indication of just how eager the publishers were to capitalise on this fashionable young author. The line between author and hero, between Dement and McAlpine, was blurred, deliberately blurred. Dement was also a young man about town, or at any rate, about the King's Road, with some glamorous girlfriends, and he was plainly someone who knew a bit about illicit substances. But after his fourth novel, Think, Inc., Michael Joseph, 1971, he simply disappeared, or in the spirit of the age, dropped out. There are several articles online describing attempts to establish Dement's present whereabouts, with sightings ranging from Zurich to a hotel in Nepal or Cambodia and a farm cottage in Kent. Somehow one feels it would be better if he remained undercover, a sleeper agent in retirement forever. But Dement did have something, a lightness of touch, a couldn't-care-less attitude, which makes him worth revisiting. Literary Spy Writers The world of fictional spies has always attracted some authors who are generally seen as literary. Somerset Maugham and Graham Greene are earlier examples. John le Carre certainly wanted to be taken seriously, primarily as a novelist, and not just someone who regularly produced espionage thrillers. Kingsley Amos and Ian Fleming seem to have almost nothing in common in background, education or attitude to writing. Fleming's first novel, Casino Royale, Jonathan Cape, 1953, was written at his boat hole in Jamaica as a task undertaken to distract him from the horrific prospect of marriage in middle age. Kingsley Amos's first, Lucky Jim, Golanx, 1954, was written while he was lecturing at Swansea. But little more than ten years later, with a book called The Anti-Death League, Golanx, 1966, Amos entered different territory, thriller territory. A hint of the direction in which Amos was travelling is provided by the cover for The Anti-Death League. Very unusually for Golanx, it was glossy and pictorial, and designed by Raymond Hawkey, who was responsible for the jackets for Len Dayton's early novels, and who also produced the strikingly simple Bond paperback covers in the mid and late 1960s. Kingsley Amis had already produced the James Bond dossier, Jonathan Cape, 1965, a non-fiction study of the Bond phenomenon. So how was it that one of the supposed anti-establishment angry young men of the 1950s came to write what is essentially an extended fan letter to a best-selling thriller writer? One factor, as already suggested, was the universal popularity of Bond. Connery, Bond mania, was reaching a peak with the release of Goldfinger, 1964, and Thunderball in 1965. But Amos genuinely admired Fleming and enjoyed the books. People read them because they wanted to, not because they had to. Thinking of his university teaching experience, he commented, one volunteer is worth ten pressed men. In fact, Amos had already begun his involvement with the Bond legacy and with Fleming's publishers. Jonathan Cape had been so concerned about what they regarded as the below-par quality of the author's last and posthumous novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, Jonathan Cape, 1965, that they asked Amos 
to give the manuscript an editorial once-over. Yet as Bond's creator faded from the scene, the earning capacity of OS 7 was climbing more and more steeply. Fleming had long before entered into complicated financial arrangements to safeguard the Bond proceeds from the taxman, and now the companies, Glidrose and the multinational booker, behind the name, were eager to protect and extend what had become a very lucrative brand. Legal advice suggested that anybody could write about James Bond as long as the result was not passed off as being by Fleming. Accordingly, the estate thought it best to commission a continuation novel as a way of seeing off unofficial imitators. If Glidrose needed Bond to go on, Amos also had his own reasons for trying to fill Fleming's rather large boots. Money was one. But he really was honoured to follow in Fleming's footsteps, approaching the task with the utmost seriousness. In his notes, as reproduced in Zachary Leader's monumental and highly readable biography, The Life of Kingsley Amos, Jonathan Cape, 2006, Amos worked out what to do. As a setting? Greece, yes. Bond never been? I never been. Sounds good. Islands just right. As for villains? Russia versus Britain, too old hat. Then Red China versus Britain and also versus Russia. So Bond could team up with Russian agent, a female. And a Chinese master villain would be fun. Thus, Colonel Sun was born. A reference to the damage caused by Scaramanga's Derringer slug in the very first paragraph of the novel places the narrative just over a year after The Man with the Golden Gun, as if Fleming had never laid down his pen and was still producing his annual thriller. There's a sense that Amos was ticking Fleming's boxes when he was writing Colonel Sun, Jonathan Cape, 1968. He was never going to take Bond in a new direction or add anything startling to the mixture. After all, why should he, when the ingredients had worked so well in the past? Amos conceded that his hero does rather more thinking than his predecessor, and critics noted that the thriller contained a bit more political reflection and analysis than Fleming's, in part because Amos was reverting to real-life enemies rather than spectre freelancers. The book was published under the pseudonym Robert Markham, and with an intriguing Salvador Dali-style jacket by Tom Adams. It did well, but it was not an experiment that Amos repeated. Indeed, he was quite dismissive of later continuation novels, feeling that they let Bond down. In the wake of Amos, I should say something about continuation novelists, since if anyone could be said to be shadowing Bond, it is those who have been licensed to produce new adventures for 007. The most prolific are John Gardner, the creator of Boise Oaks, and Raymond Benson, an American author whose nationality at first raised the hackles of Bond purists. Between them, they produced more than two dozen Bonds, though some were novelizations of the films starring Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. Like the other continuation authors, Gardner and Benson faced the problem of when to set the thrillers, whether to stick to Fleming's own period of the 1950s and early 60s, or to make Bond contemporary with publication. Gardner brought the hero up to date. For example, in the second outing, for special services, Jonathan Cape, 1982, 
Bond's occasional lover in London, is second in command to Q and described as a champion of feminism, even if the claim is rather undercut by her nickname of Cute. In another nod to changing times, Bond now smokes low-tar cigarettes. Elsewhere in the book, it's difficult to decide how seriously Gardner took Fleming's template. At one point, Bond has to disguise himself as a professorial type and wear a false greying moustache. Gardner resurrects Spectre, now under the iron thumb of a Blofeld family member. The climax involves a plan to sabotage NORAD, the real-life U.S. aerospace defense establishment in the Colorado mountains, by doctoring the ice cream, which is apparently consumed in vast quantities by the military guarding the redoubt. It's hot inside that mountain. The ice cream is laced with some unspecified drug, which makes anyone tasting it instantly obey an order, no matter how dangerous or absurd. Perhaps it is best to regard for special services as a satire. Since the days of Gardner and Benson, Ian Fleming Publications, the successors of Glidrose, has to date commissioned six fresh Bond novels, one each from Sebastian Falks, Geoffrey Deaver and William Boyd, and three from Anthony Horowitz. With the exception of Deaver, these authors have returned Bond to the world of the 1950s and 60s. A final literary writer with links to James Bond was Anthony Burgess, who in 1966 published Tremor of Intent, subtitled An Eschatological Spy Novel. The plot centres on a mission by British secret agent Dennis Hillier to travel to a coastal resort on the Crimean Peninsula where a conference of scientists from across the communist bloc is taking place. Helia is to retrieve an English defector, both a rocket scientist and an old school friend. Burgess plays with typical spy fiction conventions, from the use of codes to the sudden appearance of men with guns, from quick disguises to narrow escapes. But as the portentous subtitle suggests, he had more ambitious aims. To avoid doubt, he defined eschatological on the U.S. dust jacket, W.W. W. Norton, 1966, as the term used to designate the ultimate realities, God, the devil, hell, heaven. The Cold War conflict between East and West fitted into Burgess's view of the duality of the world, where struggle and opposition are preferable to dull neutrality, a theme he explored in other novels. Burgess preferred wordplay to cliffhangers, big themes to car chases. Even so, the novel is more than a curiosity. It is typical of the author, but it also carries an authentic whiff of the 1960s spy mania. Altogether, the 1960s was a great age for spy fiction. I don't think we'll see its equal again for zany colour, wide range and sheer excitement. That was Philip Gooden reading Shadowing Bond, which he wrote for the book collector and was printed in our issue for the summer of 2023.